Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Abraham Lincoln was born 211 years ago today. By this time, you'd think we'd have written about every interesting moment of his life and the routine ones as well. But every once in a while, someone brings to light a moment worth exploring that has gone relatively untouched. Like the time Lincoln personally led a recon mission of an enemy beach ahead of an amphibious invasion. That's the subject of Lincoln Takes Command, the campaign to seize Norfolk and the destruction of the CSS Virginia. We'll talk with author Steve Norder tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, wearing a sweatshirt this evening, not my usual professorial garb, with the letters E-C-U on it, but not speaking for E-C-U or anybody else, nor will my guest speak for anyone other than himself, as we always do here on the show. It is February 12th, Lincoln's birthday in the year 2020. We are in the midst of the 16th season of Civil War Talk Radio, rapidly approaching the 500th episode. The local news on campus this week is the same as last week, the big scandal in which two ECU Board of Trustees members attempted to bribe a student to run for student government president in exchange for money and campaign assistance and information about whoever's running on the other side, uh, all with the understanding the student who then, if they are student body president, becomes an ex-official member of the Board of Trustees, would vote the trustees' way in exchange for uh, support to get elected. 
the student was clever enough to record the whole conversation on a cell phone, and the result last week was the Board of Governors, which governs the entire ECU and UNC system uh, from Raleigh, held a meeting. First, their ethics committee met, and they decided... Uh, Ethics? What ethics? Uh, that's perfectly okay, and didn't recommend any action. But when the whole Board of Governors met, they were also assailed by delegations from ECU students, from ECU faculty, other members of the ECU Board of Trustees. Uh, everybody who knew anything about this case thought it was outrageous, and the Board of Governors did the right thing. One of the two trustees resigned before he could be appropriately disciplined. The other one is stonewalling, and so the board did what it could and, and uh, censured him, taking away his vote for several months. But when the state legislature comes back in session, uh, one hopes they will exercise their power and remove this character from the board of trustees of this school. But again, knowing the North Carolina state legislature, they may well clap the fellow on the back and say, that's just politics. Uh, we'll have to see. In Civil War news, on the other hand, uh, an interesting thing came across the screen today. You may recall that the annual reenactment to the battle at Cedar Creek was called off in the year 2018 because of threats that they, uh, the organizers received, which they they said appeared to be uh, you know, claimed to be from left wing terrorists who were opposed to anything Confederate, and. This week, the FBI revealed evidence it has found tracing the threat letters actually to a disgruntled reenactor who was kicked out of his unit and not allowed to participate in earlier Cedar Creek events. Now, the original cancellation, uh, when it was blamed on left-wing extremists, was all over the media. The discovery this week that the uh, the threats were not a political act at all, but a personal fit of peak by a, by an individual has showed up in the media approximately nowhere. I did not see anything about it. I uh, tipped the cap to uh, Dave Powell, friend of this show, frequent uh, appearer here and author of many fine books about Chickamauga and other Civil War topics. He had it on Facebook, and that's where I discovered this uh, it, this little tidbit that in fact, there was no threat, at least not from a political angle. It was just some 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 loser who didn't get to play his way. It's ironic that I found that out on Facebook when Facebook is the favorite tool for sowing disinformation in the American public, and here it was actually learned something useful. Uh, in fact, if it's not Russian trolls, it's disgruntled reenactors trying to make Americans see each other as enemies. And on today, being Lincoln's birthday, I thought I would share with you this quote from November 10th, 1864, after Lincoln won re-election to the presidency as part of a response to a, a crowd that was serenading him. He said, may not all having a common interest reunite in a common effort to save our common country? For my own part, I have striven and shall strive to avoid placing any obstacle in the way. So long as I have been here, I have not willingly planted a thorn in any man's bosom. So to that I say, amen, let's stop planting thorns in each other's bosoms. 
Some people who did just the opposite uh, were listeners who sent really nice notes over the past week. It's always a pleasure to hear from you when, uh, uh, and especially uh, welcome to get interesting suggestions for future shows and uh, the financial support is welcome as well. You can go to impedimentsofore.org, click on the PayPal button there to send a contribution to the show. Uh, this week, the Civil War Book Fund, which is not a 501c3, it's not tax deductible, uh, it's just a self-indulgent thing I operate. Uh, this week is temporarily renamed the Book uh, from Book and Bourbon to Book and Washing Machine Fund as the washing machines control panel went insane this morning and at 6.59 a.m. turned itself on and would not be turned off till finally my wife had to unplug it. Uh, apparently that's what these machines do or it's just the beginning of the the, the, the singularity if, if the machines are now becoming sentient and this is how they announce it. Uh, Anyway, this uh, machine this, this that operates uh, Civil War talk radio is not sentient. It obeys, uh, hopefully, what our, our uh, engineers say at, uh, at Voice America and, and will keep things organized in that fashion. You can find out who's going to be on the show next by going to www.impedimentsofwar.org. Next week, William Griffin, uh, Griff, he goes by, will be here to talk about his website, uh, uh, com, where he has transcribed uh, an incredible number of Civil War letters that otherwise would be lost to us all. I look forward to reading a bunch of those and talking with him about that effort next week. On the 26th of February 2020, uh, Tom Brown, old friend and colleague from Harvard Days, will be uh, with us. His new book is Civil War Monuments and the Militarization of America. And then on March 4th, there's a book about the troubles within Andersonville, bad enough to be in Andersonville prison without other prisoners making a problem. But this book is called Andersonville Raiders, Yankee versus Yankee in the Civil War's Most Notorious Prison Camp. Uh, the author's name on the cover is Gary Morgan. We'll talk with the author that night. And that'll bring us to spring break, March 11th. No live show that week. I will be uh, in in my mind sipping a tall, cool beverage with a little umbrella in it. In reality, probably grading midterm exams. Well, tonight our guest uh, has written about this remarkable week in the life of Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War when the Union captured Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, the book is called Lincoln Takes Command, and before, uh, just before bringing our guest in, let me say quickly, this book is not, there's another book by the same title. If you just Google Lincoln Takes Command, and you come across the one by John S. Tilley from 1941, that's not the book. That is a, a piece of lost cause um, uh, 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 propaganda uh, that blames Lincoln for attacking Fort Sumter. John S. Tilley was a neo-Confederate, uh, actually almost was a Confederate himself, I guess, born in 1880. Uh, he's not the one we're talking to tonight. He's also not John A. Tilley, my late colleague here at East Carolina University, a fine historian and a trained historian, uh, and one who uh, was at the museum where the 
monitor is right now uh, before he came to East Carolina. So that's our connection. That brings us to our actual guest tonight, Steve Norder, the author of Lincoln Takes Command, The Campaign to Seize Norfolk and the Destruction of the CSS Virginia. Steve, are you there? Yes, I am. Hello. Welcome to the, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you uh, got I, I came across this book. It's published by Savas Beatty, who, who are a frequent contributor of books to the show because they publish such interesting Civil War material. And uh, looking at the dust jacket, I see that you have done many things: uh, teacher, author, newspaper reporter. What, what's your day job these days, or what do you do when you're not writing about uh, about the Civil War? Uh, I do a little bit of woodworking. I'm I'm now retired. Oh, congratulations! That's excellent. Um, yes, good place to be. So, have you written books about the Civil War before this, or is this uh, the first effort? This is the first book. I had a, an article um, about 25 years ago in Civil War Times, uh, and I did a series of articles when I was a newspaper reporter with the Shreveport Journal. Uh, about the uh, last days of the Confederacy. It was a, about 30 days worth of uh, uh, little articles on what was happening in the Trans-Mississippi as the end of the war uh, worked its way out. So this, um, this story, as I mentioned in the introduction about uh, the, the capture of Norfolk, is a is one that I found captivating when I came across it uh, initially when I was assisting David Herbert Donald uh, as one of his numerous research assistants on his biography of Lincoln. I had not heard the mm-hmm. story before then and, and couldn't believe it. Uh, how, how did you come across this tale? Well, I, I sort of did what a lot of people do. You know, you read a lot of books. Um, a lot of books on the uh, uh, Monitor versus Virginia, uh, Battle of Hampton Roads, and then you come across in one of the last chapters that uh, the Virginia was blown up and Norfolk was captured and Lincoln was there. And that's about all that you'd, you'd see. Uh, right. Some books on Abraham Lincoln, uh, you, they might give a paragraph or two paragraphs uh, on him going to Norfolk. Sometimes they would say that Lincoln did something. Sometimes they would say he was just there. And so I got curious. And with curiosity, you start doing research. And I came across uh, Egbert uh, Veeley's uh, post-war article in Scribner's. And mm-hmm. with that, I started thinking, well, maybe I have a magazine article here. And so I did more research, and I, uh, I kept doing research and research, and eventually I found out, well, I really have a book. <laughs> and and when, when you get that, then you, uh, you, you never really stop doing research, but then you come to a point, well, you can research the rest of your life and never get anything out of it. So I, uh, on a uh, suggestion, I approached uh, Ted Savas with Savas Beatty, and he liked the idea for, very fortunately. That, that's there's that old saying that books are never finished; they're just published. Uh, you could always, as you say, keep researching and adding new things. The uh, this book does show a, a lot of research. Where did you 
do this research over the years? Did you travel places? Did you collect on the internet? How did this? How do you find things? Well, the the internet has become such a wonderful resource. Uh, uh, and and made my life a lot easier because while I was doing research, I did have a job, and, and you know, mm-hmm. so you, that cuts in your travel. Uh, interlibrary <laughs> loan also was very helpful uh, to uh, have materials brought to my library so I could sit, sit down and look at it. Uh, but I did get a chance to do some traveling um, uh, up in. My, my oldest daughter and her family lives in Albany, New York, and that is where the uh, John E. Wool papers are located. And so I was able to have, spend some time at the New York State Archives. Uh, I, my youngest daughter was in London going to graduate school, so I had a chance to go over there to visit her and spent a day at the uh, National Archives uh, at uh, the British National Archives, uh, which is a fascinating place. Uh, so, yes, all everything that, that could come up with as I'd get time, and then once once I retired, that gave me a little more freedom to uh, to do a little bit more research on the road. But uh, again, without the internet, this wouldn't have happened because there's so much going being put on the internet and I very appreciate all the organizations that keep adding to the our internet knowledge it, it is remarkable how much primary source material we can now access today that that would have you know taken years would have taken a lifetime to do they're now easier to get but it, it the result fortunately is we get more detailed uh, more carefully researched books uh, and this one certainly fits that uh, that model what we're going to do now is take a short break we'll come right back and talk about the campaign itself how it begins when it begins where it begins uh, talking tonight with author Steve Norder his book is Lincoln Takes Command the campaign to seize Norfolk and the destruction of the CSS Virginia I'm Jerry Prokopovich and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemont Williams. Each week, join Lemont as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. 
Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Steve Norder, author of Lincoln Takes Command, The Campaign to Seize Norfolk, and the Destruction of the CSS Virginia. Now, this campaign takes place, uh, Steve, in, in May 1862. Uh, you have the, the book organized by chapters after some introductory material uh, day by day. You know, we start Monday, May 5th, Tuesday, May 6th, which really, I thought, put me as a reader in, in the scenario. I see day by day how things are unwinding. Mm-hmm. But let, let's start with the, the strategic background. What's going on uh, in, in May of 1862 that would even prompt uh, Lincoln and uh, his two cabinet secretaries, Chase and Stanton, to go, uh, go visit uh, Fort Monroe, Virginia? This is during the time of General George B. McClellan's Army of the Potomac Peninsula Campaign. Uh, McClellan had decided that he uh, would not do a direct Washington to, to Richmond march uh, that had happened the year before and it resulted in the first Battle of Manassas or, or Bull Run. McClellan wanted to do an end around, and so he brought his army down to Fort Monroe to the southern tip of the peninsula, and Fort Monroe remained in Union hands uh, throughout the entire war. Uh, so McClellan had uh, advanced up the peninsula a little ways to Yorktown and stopped. Uh, he decided that, uh, as was his normal pattern, to be very cautious, and he decided to bring in large siege guns and and try to uh, pound Yorktown into submission. But that negated the whole... Uh, idea of swiftly going to Richmond before uh, General Johnston, Joe Johnston, could bring the main Confederate force to block him. Lincoln got tired of uh, the uh, general sitting there uh, in front of Yorktown, so as uh, his two uh, personal secretaries said, uh, uh, Nickley and Hay, that uh, so far as known, the president's purpose was to ascertain by personal observation whether some further vigilance and vigor might not be infused in the operation of the army at this at that point. Uh, so he decided to go down there. Well, 
what happened was the uh, the day before, on May 4th, 1862, uh, the Confederates pulled uh, their arm their forces out of Yorktown and were retreating up the peninsula and McClellan sent was sending his army following them. Uh, so that purpose for going down there for the president uh, was no more. And McC- while Lincoln wanted to, to talk with McClellan, McClellan didn't want to see Lincoln anyway. Uh, so the secondary purpose became trying to take uh, the city of Norfolk, Portsmouth, as well as the Gosport Navy Yard, which was the the best uh, naval facilities on on the East Coast. And they, uh, uh, the result, Lincoln hoped, was the uh, destruction of the ironclad ship, the CSS Virginia. Now, the Virginia and the Monitor had already fought uh, two months earlier, yes. so everybody yes. knows that, that the ship is there. Both sides know the other side has a, a counter weapon. Um, if you're listening to this uh, at home, or not if you're driving, don't 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 take your eyes off the road. But uh, otherwise, get yourself a map of the Hampton Roads area to follow along. And there are excellent maps in this book. Uh, but the 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 water Hampton Roads is between Fort Monroe on the north and uh, the Elizabeth River and the the towns of Norfolk and Portsmouth on the south. So while McClellan is going northwest with his army up the peninsula. Lincoln is now looking south at Norfolk, which is a seaport. So it, it's, it would be useful to uh, you know cut that off. You wouldn't have to blockade it if you captured it. Plus, it's got the Virginia sitting there. Uh, certainly a tempting target. So what does Lincoln do? He he he, he comes down to kick McClellan, uh, kickstart him. Well, he's already gone off to war, so he doesn't want to talk. Uh, who's commanding at Norfolk if, if McClellan's not there? Well, Johnny Wool uh, it was the commander at uh, Fort Monroe and the area mm-hmm. uh, of the southern tip of the peninsula. He uh, Wool was not under McClellan's command. He had an independent command reporting directly to Stanton and, and Lincoln. Uh, but Wool was kind of long in tooth. Uh, he had been in the Army since the War of 1812. Uh, wow. And so uh, he was not real ambitious. The naval commander was Lewis M. Goldsboro. Uh, he was also fairly elderly. Uh, and uh, his main concern was the Virginia. Now, after the Battle of Hampton Roads in March, uh, the orders from Lincoln were that the monitor should not be exposed uh, to uh, another battle with the Virginia unless it had a lot of help and victory was assured. So therefore, it's kind of a stalemate. The Virginia couldn't go out uh, and attack any more Union ships, and the Monitor couldn't go after the Virginia and sink it. So uh, Lincoln's uh, uh, plan then was that uh, from some from suggestions and some plight requests, Lincoln tried to move his military commanders, both the Navy and the Army, into action to accomplish his goal. 
These included sending Union vessels up the James River, uh, including the USS Galena, which was another ironclad, not as well made uh, probably as the Monitor, but a different style. Um, And uh, he ordered the bombardment of uh, the Confederate fort at Sewell's Point, uh, which guarded the approach to Norfolk, uh, the, the the entrance up to the Elizabeth River, and then uh, his goal was to get Union troops landed on the southern shore of Hampton Roads to march to, to Norfolk. As long as the uh, Virginia was active, he couldn't just have soldiers sail across and land at Sewell's Point or anywhere along the southern shore of Hampton Roads. Uh, the the water was too shallow in the first place, and the troops would have had to wade about a half mile, uh, according to Wool's uh, uh, engineer. And uh, anyway, you know, that wouldn't have been very good to have the uh, an ironclad throwing shells at the soldiers anyway. Now, I, I pictured that uh, a quarter mile or half a mile of, of shallow water they have to wade through uh, obviously brings to mind Normandy and, and the uh, wading through the, the tide. The tide had to be just right so the beach obstacles would be uh, mm-hmm. exposed and, and, and so on. So, so the American troops and Allied troops there had to, to suffer that. This would have been the same thing, not going on to a Atlantic wall, but, but the... The ironclad would be there. The Virginia, you know, firing grape shot at these guys as they try to walk through the water would have been horrifying. Uh, yeah. So obviously, that's that. I can see why Wool thinks this isn't practical. Uh, yeah, and and, the, and he he also wouldn't have been able to offload uh, any of his horses or mm-hmm. or artillery. Uh, yeah, you can't bring the artillery. No, they, through the water. Yeah. Now, I want to ask about going up the river, though. That seemed uh, logical. I can picture Washington or Lincoln back in Washington saying, well, you know, send the Galena, send some gunboats up the James River, uh, let them get outside of Richmond and throw a few shells in the place. That'll set off a panic. Uh, That's, that, and, was and the, that was, that was the, the point of trying to do that. And unfortunately for uh the uh, Galena, uh, uh, first they got stuck because the the channel markers had all been changed, uh, and it was, and then eventually it, uh, after all this happened uh, the following week, uh, there was an attempt to go on up to, up to Richmond, including with the monitor, uh, but uh, the Confederate sources had pretty well blocked that at Drury's Bluff, uh, which was a major uh, insulation with large cannons, and it didn't work at all. I thought that was interesting, the uh, the description of the, the Union ships going upriver. Drew, Drew Reeves Bluff is a great position, and, and you know, listeners, you can still go there today and look down mm-hmm. the river and see why the Confederates could hold the river from that spot. But at the time you're describing, Stephen, in May of 1862, they haven't fortified it yet. They don't have it in place. And Oh, no, the, no, it, it was fortified. Okay, but, yes. but they... 
well, you describe how they're still trying to get things ready as as the Union ships are coming up river. They're that you know, Jefferson Davis is sending his wife and children out of Richmond uh, out of fear the Union ships are going to arrive. Yeah, there there was panic and uh, some panic in in, in Richmond. Uh, they because they weren't sure that uh, the facility the Drury's uh, Bluff would be able to uh, to halt them. But mm-hmm. also uh, besides the uh, the guns that they had there, the ch- uh, the channel was blocked by sinking ships, mm-hmm. and. And so it it would have been a, a difficult thing just for Lincoln to say head on up there, uh, and no matter what. Uh, and as it turned out, they did they weren't able to do that until much later in the war. So that's so the, Lincoln gets his way in that he, he he gets some action. He gets the navy to try something, but it doesn't work. Uh, now you describe he also has the navy go bombard Sewell's Point, as you just mentioned, the the defenses of Norfolk on the south side yes. of Hampton Roads. Uh, how does that go over? It goes pretty well uh, from the Union side. Uh, the uh, Confederate forces. Uh, are not able to uh, to knock out any ships. In fact, their their gunnery wasn't very good at that point. But you also have to keep in mind that while this was going on uh, by Lincoln's actions and what he was trying to do, the Confederates had already decided to evacuate Norfolk and Portsmouth and the Navy Yard uh, and, and all the forts that guarded that area. Uh, the thinking was uh, from uh, President Davis and and even uh, General Robert E. Lee was that as McClellan's forces went up the peninsula, it would eventually cut off Norfolk and Portsmouth and those troops would be lost. And they needed those troops to join the main army to fight McClellan. So as what Lincoln was doing during that week, uh, across uh, in Norfolk, uh, Benjamin Eugee, the, the Army general, and uh, was evacuating his troops, sending his troops out, uh, units at a time. And so the force at Sewell's Point, when Lincoln's Navy went over there to bombard it, had already been depleted. Uh, not completely, but... So the, the reaction from the Confederate forces were not as strong as that they would have been the, the week or two weeks earlier. It was interesting to read how the Union forces are ordered to try to lure the Virginia out into the open water where both the Monitor and all its supporting ships can, can gang up on it. So Virginia comes out, the Union ships fall back, trying to hope it'll come out further. It, they, the Virginia does, and it turns around and goes back. And both sides write, "Oh, the other side is scared to fight with us." Uh, oh yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, the uh, Joshua Tatnell, who was the flag officer uh, on the U.S. or I'm sorry, the CSS Virginia, uh, was very contemptuous of the Union Navy, even though he had he had grown up, spent his all uh, many decades in the uh, U.S. Navy. Uh, but uh, uh, the the idea 
was that the Virginia was too strong to just uh, shoot cannonballs at it uh, to destroy it. You had to ram it. And so there was a number of ships, uh, the most prominent one being the Cornelius Vanderbilt, which the ship was named after the magnet, uh, uh, the richest man in the country. And he had uh, uh, either sold or loaned, uh, the source is kind of vague on that, uh, to the U.S. Army. Uh, but uh, the Vanderbilt had been... Is, was the largest ship uh, in the country, uh, and uh, and it along with uh, three other ships, were their job was simply to run over the the Virginia if it came out, but it had to come out far enough, and Tattnall was too cautious or knew what they were trying to do, and right. it didn't, and so it that never happened. Uh, the the confrontation that. Uh, had been hoped for it never happened uh, but uh, the uh, when the Virginia did come down and the monitor backed up uh, from it Tadnell decided that uh, they weren't going to come and meet him on fairly equal terms and so he fired the gun to windward which is a old uh, naval uh, signal of contempt. So he had no use for his his Yankee opponents there. I, just clarifying for listeners, you did not misspeak when you said uh, the Cornelius Vanderbilt was was given to the U.S. Army, uh, not the Navy. No, I, and they're, I, they're, I they're, did they're, not misspeak. No, <laughs> there's a lot of discussion in your book of the the inter-service uh, cooperation or lack thereof. The Navy didn't didn't want the vessel, so the Army takes it, and the Army's got its own boats to try to get the troops across Hampton Roads. Well, the key. Uh, uh, the key story, the one uh, that drew my attention to this book, is the decision of where the troops will land if, if that original beach it requires a half mile of open uh, water to be crossed by the troops up to their waists or their necks in water. Maybe there's a better beach on the other side. Uh, we'll find about out about that on the other side of another break. We'll take a short break here, uh, come back and talk more with our guest, Steve Norder, author of Lincoln Takes Command, The Campaign to Seize Norfolk and the Destruction of the CSS Virginia. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Steve Norder, author of Lincoln Takes Command, The Campaign to Seize Norfolk, and the Destruction of the CSS Virginia. We've been talking about the situation in May 1862. The Union Army of the Potomac is on the peninsula. Uh, Confederates are falling back from Yorktown toward Richmond, and they're also uh, in the process of evacuating Norfolk on the south side of the James River and Hampton Roads because it's no longer defensible. But the Union forces don't know that. They've been reluctant to move against the town, partly because there's no good place, apparently, to land troops. So uh, we learned from from your book, Steve, that on... uh, on on Friday, May 9th, uh, Secretary of the Treasury Salmon Chase goes across the water in uh, in a revenue cutter, the Miami, the one that took the party down from Washington, and transfers to a tugboat, transfers to a rowboat, and ends up going ashore and finding a, a decent stretch of beach elsewhere near Norfolk. And when he comes back and tells everybody about it, Lincoln says, I want to go. And we have the spectacle of Lincoln and Chase and Secretary of War Stanton doing the same thing, sailing across the water, rowing ashore, being rowed ashore with a party of soldiers, and walking on a Confederate beach. There's no one between them and, as far as they know, a whole rebel army in Norfolk, Virginia. What is going on? Well, uh, it was Lincoln's enthusiasm uh, once he heard from from Chase that uh, Chase who, who went along with General Wool in the, in the first reconnaissance uh, mm-hmm. finding a, a very good landing spot uh, they could get fairly close uh, to the water and uh, they had taken their with them uh, Wool's uh, chief engineer uh, Thomas uh, Cram and Cram said this could work. And so when Chase got back and told uh, the president about it, he did want to see what it looked like. And so uh, they took the Miami again and picked picked up a a tugboat to follow them and some soldiers uh, to accompany them and went outside of Hampton Roads around uh, what's called Willoughby's Point. And uh, to what is now uh, Virginia Beach, 
at the time it was called Ocean View. And uh, Lincoln would transferred from the Miami to the tugboat and then to a rowboat and stepped on to the beach. Uh, about it was about six p.m. The sun was beginning to set. And as Chase said, uh, the president landed on the beach and walked up and down a considerable distance to assure himself that there could be no mistake in the matter. Uh, And Chase said, uh, how little the Confederacy dreamed what a visitor it had that night on their sacred soil. Uh, And and so it was... uh, uh, Now... Where Lincoln walked on the beach and where Jason Wool first walked uh, on the beach, they were not the same exact spot. Uh, later, Chase figured out it was about a quarter of a mile difference. You know, when, when you're looking at a beach from the water, it all kind of looks about the same. Right. Uh, but uh, the, the fact that the president wanted to assure himself that this was going to work because he had been frustrated uh, the day before uh, when the bombardment uh, at Sewell's Point didn't result in figuring out a way to get troops just across uh, Hampton Roads. Mm-hmm. And so uh, he, when Lincoln got back to Fort Monroe, the, the word spread very quickly that this is what Lincoln did. And he, the, the troops that were at Fort Monroe were cheering the president, and the newspaper men at the fort uh, praised Lincoln for uh, taking an important and dangerous reconnaissance. Uh, and so they were, you know, it, it's really a sight. You know, this is the uh, think of any other president during any other conflict that we've had. Now, you know, mm-hmm. obviously. President Roosevelt would not have been able to to walk on, on Normandy Beach before the invasion. That that would have been an impossibility. But mm-hmm. uh, just to, to to picture this, and uh, I, I think that that is the the heart of of what Lincoln is about and and how he acted uh, well, as president. It, 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 indeed, it, it taking you know showing this initiative. Uh, which, in retrospect, you read about it, and, and it, it makes it obvious that a more diligent and energetic commander than, than Wool could have sent out a patrol to do this, or the Navy could have landed a team to do this, uh, had they been really interested in getting troops across and not thinking about what could go wrong, uh, which, which they seem to obsess over, if they'd been thinking about how can we make it go right, uh, they could have done the same thing, but they didn't. That's the key point. And Lincoln and Chase are the ones who went ahead and did so and, and made this happen. Uh, you point out no other, you know, no president since Lincoln has ever been uh, under enemy fire. He, he was almost under enemy fire here in Fort Stevens. We all know later in the war that will happen. Uh, mm-hmm. Madison was involved in the British capture of Washington and uh, but but since then it's not been the president's job even though he was commander in chief to actually fight the battles but that's what Lincoln does here and within 12 hours the troops who have been waiting for, for a chance to do something who are either on board the canal boats or nearby uh, they get bundled aboard and they're they're across the water and they land within within a day yes uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Cram 
devised a way of using barges to run one barge uh, sideways up against the the beach, build Mm -hmm. a plank off of that barge, run another barge uh, like a T into the the first one, and that that way built a wharf, uh, and the troops could land or could step off from from the boats and the and the barges that carried them dry right onto the beach. You could get the horses, you could get the artillery off, uh, and it, in no time, uh, the soldiers were sent off and to. Uh, to take uh, the city uh, of Norfolk. So by 6 a.m. the next morning, you got some 6,000 Union soldiers there. Uh, with not too much time left, I'm going to jump ahead. Uh, you mentioned earlier that the Confederacy is evacuating Norfolk, and by the time the soldiers get there, there's no there's no battle to be fought. But we still got the CSS Virginia and the Elizabeth River. Uh, what happens to it? The uh, the army commander, Confederate Army commander Hughie, was supposed to have notified uh, Tattnall w- by signal when the army left. He failed to do so. Therefore, Tattnall didn't know what was going on uh, up in Norfolk. He didn't really know about the landing and the Union troops headed that way. So. The first indication was there was no flag at Craney Island, which was another fort guarding the river. And so he had to send out a rowboat with an officer, and they rowed up uh, to Norfolk and to the uh, Gosport Navy Yard to find out it's all been evacuated and Union troops were on the outskirts of town. So then they had to row Mm. all the way back down, and then uh, Tattnall had to make a decision. Does he take the, uh, his Virginia and fight to the end, or uh, does he try to flee up the James River? His pilot said that he could, that they could get him up the James River if they lightened the ship, and they spend the night throwing everything overboard, uh, the ballast that held the, the the ship low in water, the the crew's water, uh, drinking water, anything that except guns and powder and shells they threw overboard the pilots then said nope we can't do it anyway and then Tatnell had no choice he couldn't go up he couldn't flee the ship was too high in the water to even think about fighting it and so he had to destroy it that was an interesting point that that the the idea that you could get up the James River over the bars, the same thing that held up the USS Galena, uh, if you got the ship high enough in the water, made sense. But when they failed to get it up high enough because of the current tide and wind, then you've, you you make the point that the ship can't now go on a, a death mission because it's riding so high in the water, it's got all this unprotected wood showing. Uh, right. below the armor and it would it would be vulnerable like it like it's not an ironclad so it, it if they'd known that originally he could theoretically have sailed out and just gone out in a blaze of glory but he, that becomes he, impossible he could have he, he could have but he was also thinking about his crew you know there's True. there's roughly 320 uh uh members of a uh, crew on, on that ship yeah, and he didn't want to waste their lives. 
So, so they Coke. decide to blow it up. They yeah. lit. Uh, they covered it, uh, on, you know, with gunpowder and and oil and and fat and and wood and everything, and set it afire and landed. Uh, first, you know, first they landed the troops, and as they were marching away, they had the, about a twenty mile march up to Suffolk to catch a train to Richmond, and. Uh, before they got to Suffolk, uh, about uh, five, ten to five minutes before five a.m. on the eleventh uh, of May, the Virginia blew up, and, and that was audible all over the place. Oh yes, it, it, the the reports say you know the soldiers in Norfolk heard it, the Union soldiers, the 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 water rippled uh, the. The houses of, you know, the buildings outside of Fort Monroe shook. Uh, it was a pretty big explosion. Wow. So the, uh, it reminded me, I read somewhere that the, the children's uh, clapping rhyme, Miss Mary Mac, uh, which I learned when my daughters were little, well, they learned it, and, and the way children know things and tell their parents, uh but Miss Mary Mack, all dressed in black, uh, uh, she ends up uh, jumping so high. The elephants jump so high, they don't come down till the 4th of July. And all this supposedly, uh, by some accounts, is a folk version of what happens to the, the Merrimack, the Virginia. Hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, and your description of its explosion and destruction called that to mind for me. So the the result is Lincoln goes back to Washington. He's he's had what what Chase calls a brilliant weeks campaign. Norfolk is in Union hands. Uh, I thought it was interesting that everybody takes credit for it besides uh, Lincoln. Uh, yes, uh, yeah. Yeah, McClellan said, said that uh, if it wasn't for his movements uh, towards Richmond, uh, Norfolk would never have fallen. Uh, but uh, Chase does uh, credit Lincoln, and you have to remember that you know Chase was really a political rival uh, yeah. of Lincoln, and would would uh, contest, think about contesting his Lincoln's reelection in in 1864, but. Uh, the immediate reaction uh, was uh, one newspaper said, you know, the president is entitled to all the honors of a successful campaign and to the bestowment of the formal formal title of full general as a result of his visit to Fortress Monroe. Uh, another newspaper uh, thought uh, that uh, Lincoln should have followed McClellan up the peninsula and taken over direct command himself. And uh, because that power of his presence would have driven Jeff Davis headlong from his capital and made the way smooth for our victorious forces. Uh, And Lincoln, you know, at at this time, he he was actually, besides commander-in-chief, he was acting as his own general-in-chief. And he would in a couple of weeks, try to orchestrate a, another campaign from long distance using the telegraph to uh, to move troops around. It completely failed in the in the uh, Shenandoah Valley uh, to stop uh, Jackson's uh, efforts, and so Lincoln so, finally decided in July that he needed somebody else 
to be the general-in-chief, and that's when he brought Henry Halleck uh, from the West. Well, that, that brings us to uh, another story, and unfortunately brings us to the end of our time, but oh, it is a fascinating sorry. story. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It, it, this happens every week. I always think, man, we could do another hour, uh, <laughs> but here we are. Uh, listeners, if you want to learn about the the details of how Lincoln takes command, uh, read the book by that title, the subtitle, The Campaign to Seize Norfolk and the Destruction of the CSS Virginia. Its author is Steve Norder, who has been our guest tonight. Steve, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.